Hey guys, just a quick message here before we start. If you hear me talking about GDG in these early episodes that I'm uploading now to Anchor, uh, these were originally uploaded to my Patreon uh, months ago, that GDG does not actually exist anymore, uh, but we still reference it. And uh, if you want to see the latest episodes, go to patreon.com slash Pullman, but I'll be re-uploading these old ones until I get caught up with the new episodes. So in these first ones, you'll hear me talking about GDG. Just uh, know that that was a Discord we were using. A lot of us met there, and uh, it was a pretty cool place. Now we're more scattered out again, and some of us share other Discords and stuff like that. But anyway, I just thought I'd mention that before the episode starts. Enjoy. Good episode today. We got Ulysses, who's making uh, Acroy Diesel age. And what I have to say about this man is that he's ambitious. And it's inspiring to me because I like to think of myself as being somewhat ambitious on the design side, but he's really ambitious in the full scope of promoting and being active. He's got people play testing and, and you know recording himself putting it online and putting out extra campaigns he's he's doing so much to make his game a success and i can't help but root for him and i want you to listen to his attitude and uh we get we start off talking about you know dungeons and dragons and some familiar uh old topics and branching out into some design questions but eventually we get around to his actual system and his setting and uh, things really kick off when we get into the guts of what he's trying to accomplish and how he's accomplishing it. I think you're really going to enjoy his energy and uh, boy, I don't want to kiss his ass too much, but I like the go get it mentality that a lot more people in GDG and anywhere in, in anything you're trying to create, you need that level of energy if you want to succeed, I think. And uh, it's not going to be by luck. It's going to be by perseverance more than anything. So listen, pay attention, and enjoy. All right, we're here with Ulysses, and we're going to talk about his game, Acroid Diesel Age, amongst other things. We're going to get to his philosophy on game design, lessons he's learned, and uh, what he's currently doing to try to keep his project fresh and promote it as much as possible, which is something that a lot of people currently working on projects in GDG, they're not at that stage yet, so I'm very curious to find out what that all involves. Why don't you say hi and, and tell us about your game? Oh, hello, hello. Yeah, I am Ulysses on Discord. Uh... Better know, I guess, is leaving an to the real world because it's all over the products. Can't really hide that now. Anonymity gone. Oh wow! Dox yourself. I'm gonna get hate mail now. <laughs> uh, yeah, and all right, friends. But no, it's fine. I'm too relevant to get hate mail. I made a D100 tabletop RPG. It'll be very familiar for anyone who's played 
the Fantasy Flight Warhammer games, not WFRP 3rd Edition with the Story Dice shit. That was like the precursor to the Star Wars ones. I'm talking like second edition of fantasy. I'm talking about, uh, you know, Dark Heresy. You those will, you'll be familiar, but it's not a straight knockoff and there's going to be some very unique and different mechanics that you will find additionally raised level of competency. I know a lot of people are used to starting out with like a 40% chance to hit and their very best skill in those games. And I tried to remedy that. Sometimes it feels like you can start a little OP, but I felt that that was healthier than, oh, I'm going to be a worthless peasant and die get someone decent who's going to be ridiculously overpowered, right? That's not part of the appeal of those systems is that you start off feeling totally useless. In many ways it is. And I'm, and I mean, hey, I've played a lot of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay Second Edition and I intend to continue. So I'm not like knocking that appeal. I'm just saying I know a lot of people hear that and they're like, eh, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be worthless. And while you can certainly feel worthless in many ways in Ada because of how frail you can be and how things break and stuff and that's part of the experience, you take psyche damage. I also wanted you to feel like and you can, you can be competent. You can be somebody who is of, of note. And I think that that is a, a game design decision that I kind of, I was nervous to do because I'm a bit of a pseudo simulationist at heart. Not that my game is that complex. But the PCs and NPCs all start out at the same level. But in practice, that's not what I've done in my game. In practice, I gravitated towards have NPCs and PCs starting out at the same level, but because of certain things I've done, really, you, you are someone that you are a PC, right? right? A player character, something defines them. I think somebody in Warhammer 40k involved with that shit, the new game that just came out of questionable value, maybe it's coming out a little while, but he said uh, what puts the player characters apart from everybody else 40k is hope, which I thought was a very interesting idea, particularly given the grim dark background. Oh, yeah. That's an interesting take on on creating something that's like an RPG in that universe that's so bleak, where most people are just uh, want to die in glory and you know get get their last stand somewhere. Did you refer to your own game as Ada just barely? I I do refer to it as Ada in part because I acknowledge the fact that. The name can be a mouthful, and additionally, because I think it's just, it's quick and snappy. You can just say, out of this, out of that. Yeah, um, I, I, I just call didn't want to be confused of some other game, maybe, that's called Ada or something that I, I, I was getting mixed up, but. Okay, Correct. so your game is, is not derived from that. Obviously, it's similar enough that people who are familiar with it will feel a little bit more comfortable with that, and. You 100, and they'll see degrees of success, and they'll see stat bonuses, and they'll look, okay, but they'll notice that. There are only four, then from there they'll be like, what? And then they'll see that skills are completely different. And so, yeah, it'll be a different ball game, but it won't be like a completely alien thing. Do you mind if I ask just right off the bat, like what initially inspired you to want to make the game in the first place? Yeah, that's a, that's a hard question. I guess I've always had these sorts of like, is like setting wise, I guess I've always had similar ideas bouncing around in my head, ill formed. And I've always loved world building. I've created many. It's not obvious because I've leaned so heavily into this one rather than going on to another one. But, uh, yeah, normally world building is very easy for me, but actually writing down like drama or finishing a game system is very hard for me. I know we're going into that more later, but basically what inspired me, I think most directly and physically led to this being made is perhaps the best way to narrow down inspiration. Hacking games to make them something that they were not meant to be with something that they did not have in mind experience yeah. with my players and to address problems that we had and 
not even always problems, but just I thought it would be cool or it was a nitpick or I wanted, I, I would create an additional subsystem. I think most people who run games will create subsystems that did not exist initially. Just don't want to look up whatever the real one is or they didn't know there's a quote unquote real official one. Right. They're like, oh, you know, it, if you do this, then that'll happen. And then it almost becomes an official, unofficial part of your instance of that game, which I think is a neat way that games are played and reproduced. And what? that was, yeah, that sort of just drove me further and further. And I've tried to make systems before. I actually completed one and put it out on, fortunately, nobody gave a shit. It was a D10 uh, space dog fighting game. Oh, that's sad. Well, it's, it's fine. I mean, it's like one person bumped like the original content, but there was... There was no art, right? Uh, there was, there wasn't much there, and it was, it was fairly generic. Like, it wasn't associated with some fandom. And I think that art or fandom are really your only hopes of ascending to relevancy in, unless you're a special case, such as, you know, a guy who should definitely have on this podcast, Sweet Soul Brother, who makes, of course, evolution from D20 modern ops and tactics, who has been very helpful to me over, uh, the many moons that I've been making this game. Hmm. Interesting. And what you were saying about the uh, evolution of things as a as a GM or whatever, adding in your own subsystems and things. I mean, isn't that really how Dungeons and Dragons evolved over time? Is they just had so much feedback mm-hmm. from players who were like, "I think you should have this for that kind of system and this for that kind of system," and they just stole all the ideas and was like, "Yeah, we're just going to include them in." And this is and even, even further back, I think the genesis of making it was they were playing war games and they were like. Oh, let's, let's, uh, go inside the keep with a few dudes. Oh, let's, uh, or the gatehouse, whatever. Oh, let's go and now there's dungeons. Now there's whatever. And now there's dragons, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, exactly. So that sort of chain of creativity that gets reintegrated back into the main system is something that nowadays, if you tried to do that, I think there would be, you know, people would criticize you for being a hack or just taking other people's ideas uh, and stuff. But, I think people, but, oh yeah, but of course, how many of the ideas that we're using really are original? I mean, I mean, from indies or other genres or whatever. Yeah, being wholly um, original is not really something that's possible anymore, but there's a lot of interesting ways, though, you can put a twist on something, obviously. I, I do think that just trying to be original for originality's sake is very vain, and even if you achieved your goal, I don't necessarily think it would create a fun game to play. Is that what you meant before when you said you wanted to talk about unique mechanics and, and that versus... uh you know, ripping off think, the system. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it seems weird. All to go back, I would say, uh, afraid of that is they saw where it wound up with three point PF and they were like, this is a bad place. Let us not return. Let us never speak of it again. Right. Mm-hmm. And even the grognards ass blast is about fifth edition have mostly moved on to it because they had to, at some point, I think the majority reckoned and they saw, yeah, and five was a, quite a mistake. And it was the logical culmination of D&D, there's a different way to remix that. I think that's what 5th edition wound up as, right? Call yeah. it simplistic if you want, but it it cut the fat away that the DMs would now again be the people coming up with those subsystems of manufacturers or whatever. Yeah, so as a as somebody making your own system, I mean that I don't mind talking about the history of how these other systems evolve and sort of the logic, but I mean what can you learn from that as you're trying to design your own game? Uh, I've definitely, there's, there's the literal things like what's popular, what will people be annoyed by fourth edition. If you, if some, if you're somebody who's thinking that you'd like to give your players five different ways to attack, 
informed by looking at fourth edition and the reaction to that and the people who do like that and what else they like. But uh, in terms of me personally, I don't know, it's probably a place where I like to do test out mechanics and I like to seek out mechanics and I like to try and think of new ways to do them. But I do frequently wind up going back to the old ones and original because they, they work. They get the job done, right? I mean, anything that has an initiative system is technically speaking knocking something off, right? Oh, and I, I do feel that I also was taking me to remote places like I wanted to knock off for social combat, but I, what I wound up doing was very different, but still heavily inspired by the fact that it introduces certain gambling concepts into the way that the game is played. You cut out for and a little bit. Which, which introduced the gambling concepts? In the Vineyard, which is an indie game about being like alt history Mormon sheriffs in like a Mormon independent state. <laughs> I've have heard of it. I know a lot of people respect the design of the game. I haven't actually looked into it yet myself, but uh, there's there's actually quite a few systems I avoid looking into because I'm scared that I'm just going to start ripping off stuff from it. If if it has a solution that I haven't found a solution to yet. Uh, it's going to prevent me from just coming up with my own. So I like to try to come up with something first, and then after I'm satisfied with it, go look at other people's stuff. But Dogs in the Vineyard... Yeah, I mean, oh, go ahead. I think that the fear of being influenced is creative, but personally I found that shedding it and just being aware of it... I also understand, like, there's kind of a desire to go and seek out something like very bedrock and very you that is new. And I have ideas for games like that all the time that, like, have really niche combat mechanics and stuff like that, but it, or if I'll go to them or if there's a reason that I'm avoiding them. But yeah, I think, I think everybody has those two sides of them. Like, I, I, I really want to go see what's out there, but also I really don't because yeah. I don't want to be influenced. Yeah. I mean, through the hard process of trying to work in a vacuum, being ignorant of a lot of, you know, alternative systems, everybody can basically complain about Dungeons and Dragons, but you know when you bring it up on something like TG or whatever, you'll always get the people who say there are games that do that differently. Just you have to look for them, and it's kind of like, oh well, I kind of don't want to look into them because maybe it'll make my project irrelevant. Yeah, yeah I know that uh, for myself, it was it was interesting to now now that I'm closer to being finished, and I'm like you said, finishing something is a is a skill on its own. Uh, you said that, I think, before we started recording, but, uh, oh, yeah. The, once I'm closer to finish, now I like to go and read other systems and see, oh, that's how they did that. Well, I'm kind of glad I, I did it my own way because I really do want to stand apart from these other things. I'm curious, just maybe, maybe this is a hard question to answer, but do you think there's sort of this consensus hive mind in tabletop gaming of what forward progress is and do you feel any pressure to conform to that um yes definitely uh i mean there's people i've ran into on these discord servers who like they saw that i was making a game with stats and equipment and they're like ah, that's all been done before oh and i saw them showing some like abstract gamist's way of doing it but it was for like some choose your own adventure game which they clearly found superior i'm just like all right fam like I, I'm no stranger to criticism, and I've been told that I've been doing things completely wrong, and I've accepted that, and those, those people are correct. But some people are just like Hitler's about their own idea of progress. Although I think that there's, that's like an extreme version of like, yeah, they're idiots. But also there's a very reasonable, like one thing on the list is of course flanking, and how to do flanking, and how to make it relevant or not. 
And the default, like the the canonical way to do it in these games, I'm pretty sure because how the Warhammer ones did it, plus ten to your attack, uh, your chance to hit per other person engaging your target in melee, hmm. creates this like ganking mode, right? Right. Where it doesn't. It, there's not. It's not really a strategy. It's just are we going to gank them? And then, uh, you know, I didn't like that, and I came up with something that I thought was kind of cool, where, but it introduced facing to the system, which had not had facing for regular infantry previously, and, like, it was... Ultimately, I think I created a better system. It's there, technically, as an optional rule, out of advanced rule, but um now into it, and that's how, uh, you know, not flanking, but that's how additional combatants works in ADA, simply because that was logical and straightforward, and ultimately... When you're working with a certain type of system, the logical and straightforward answer is gonna have finds a more logical and straightforward answer. Everyone's gonna start flocking to that shit. Kind of like, I mean, even just something simple like AC going up instead of down. I don't. I've never seen an OSR game. They probably exist, but I've never seen an OSR game that makes AC go down. Right. Old D and D, but because once they have seen AC going up instead of down, they're like everybody else has been fucking up. Or, you know, the old people had been fucking up, and they go with it. Even if they love everything else about those old systems, there are some just simpler and more logical decisions to be made, series of systems that you just go, nope, that's it. AC goes up now. And I think that those sorts of things, you know, one can rally against the consensus, one can find reasons, but the whole, if you're, you should accept that if you are working with a very similar kind of system, they will be common solutions, and you can have reasons for deviating, reason for deviating and not just I want to be special. See, I'm the kind of guy I want to be special. <laughs> no, I, I mean, you know, I'd, I mean, I probably I think that anybody who's making this game has some sense of that. Anybody who's making a game has some sense of that because it's kind of like running for political office. Like, even if you respect the other person, you have to, at a base level, believe that you are the better candidate for the job running. And yeah. so why are you making this game if you don't honestly believe that this niche is not filled, right? Well, in my my general opinion on, you know, pressures conform to a consensus or taking the consensus as being the tried and true wisdom is that I generally feel like the consensus is almost always wrong and and I really don't respect uh the idea of of taking anything at face value. Obviously, if you've run systems and you've played them enough, and you personally are attached to certain concepts and stuff, then use it because it's it's appealing mm-hmm. to you. But almost, uh, and I'm not saying that as even relevant to game design per se. I just mean in general. But it's like if you, in my mind, if you're not willing to challenge what is agreed upon and what the consensus is, then you're not really. Well, I, you, you can still take it very seriously and still have a lot of creativity. But for myself, it was like, I, I'm going to take, I'm going to try to go back to the drawing board in as many cases as I can and see where I end up. And if it's, if I end up giving up because I'm just like, well, they did it better and there's a reason why they did it and what, and why it has evolved to the way it has, then I don't need to make my system because it turns out there's no better alternative. But I at least wanted to try to explore that for the sake mm-hmm. of being kind of a contrarian and kind of, uh, just wanted to test my own creativity, see if I disregard something. Am I going to end up at the same point that they did anyway, just out of trial and error and realizing that, you know, they, there's a reason why they did it a certain way? 
Yeah, I think that there's also the question of why, well, why are we here? And a lot of it, I think, is because why is the canonical answer, have you tried not playing D&D? But it, you don't even need to be talking about D&D, right? But it's something that has been inherited from D&D from a very specific place in wargaming, right? Wargaming history. And I think that a lot of the, there are a lot of things that there's totally a different way to do it. But we get into this hidden, the hidden costs, and perhaps part of why I was so quick to point out a similarity with my game to another, something totally original. Someone must entirely relearn. And I know that people like like to say, oh, it's so easy to run role-playing games. Maybe I'm just a, a dense motherfucker. But I tried to read D&D rulebooks and shit when I was a kid for years, and I could never get through it. Not until I was physically playing the game with people in college actually managed to get into a game that wasn't like, oh, I tried to play Fate once in freshman year. It didn't go well. Um, um, see, you know, at the same time, I would argue that, at least from what I've seen, and I haven't looked at all the different editions of Dungeons and Dragons, but fifth edition I was even reading and I found it to be terribly written. Like, I hate reading those books. I think if you were to actually, if, if a fan were to write how you should run D&D and how you should play it, it would be way more honest because they wouldn't prop up a bunch of false notions that don't actually play out in the game itself. So as a kid, you read something and you think that there, you know, there's a real wisdom there that you have to pay attention to. But once you actually play it and you see how people actually play, you can disregard almost everything in those books. And in that sense, it's not that, you know, it, that yeah. it was too advanced for you. It's just that it was poorly written, right? Run 5e. I didn't actually like look at the book. I uh, found a a cheat sheet in several parts in a colorized Imgur album that someone had made, and that was entirely what I used to run stuff in the Roll Twenty Compendium, like specific items. But everything else, that was it. I never engaged with any official Wizards of the Coast product, and then affect my running of a Dungeons and Dragons Fifth Edition game. That's hilarious. Super. Yeah, and a lot of that shit's superfluous, but also it's all there for a very specific reason. With Wizards of the Coast, how much money they put into that shit, yeah. there's a reason that all of it's there. And part of it is that they're trying to shape your starting point because they know that every group is going to arc out, right? But if they get them to a certain starting point, then they can control that community growth. And in this period of unprecedented growth and interest in the hobby, we have billboards for that one, you know, fucking voice actors, the Twitch game on <laughs> billboards outside of major cities, like D&D is huge again, more like more so than its initial release, and everybody's coming to those official 5th edition products and to like the in, to a, a secondary degree, the YouTube videos around it, shit. I think it's a third further out degree, the sort of shit that you and I referenced, that I just referenced, that's almost exclusively for people who are already pretty well entrenched or who have been into these sorts of hobbies already. I think that they want to bring them all to a certain place because they've studied past branches and they have certain ideas about how the game is supposed to be run or valid ways to run the game. But additionally, they have ideas of how they want to sell their products and how they want to move forward. And it is very beneficial to them to have a huge, having to deal a whole bunch of people who think they know better because right. they, they're amateur game designers is way more fucking stressful than just dealing with a whole bunch of you know, not, not lambs to the slaughter, but you know, and that's new people, and that's way, I think it's, it's a, it's difficulty, it's a challenge in some ways, and I think that they could improve how they write the books literally for them to make it easier for them to play the game. I think some things are just done out of convention, 
why the fuck are there three different books that are the essential books to be able to play stroke run the game? Oh, it's because Wizards of the Coast is charging you, you know, the greater half of $100 at least for each of those fucking books. Yeah, I mean, I, w- I wanted to point out, when, uh, like, in these, in these books, from what I can tell, they're deliberately written in, in an obtuse way, in a difficult way, so that even though you could condense everything you really need to know about how to run the game onto two sheets of paper and then somebody could screen cap it and share it online, you know, and the books would be irrelevant. It feels like the books are written in a way that, that spreads out essential information across so many pages that it's impossible to, uh, basically take a screenshot of it and just spread it around, you know? Yeah. Even though fans have produced something equivalent. Yeah. It's, I think it is a concern about it, but also making yourself irrelevant to the running of your system. And this, there's an argument to be made there. I think part of this isn't just that, but also convention. Like, oh, this is the part of the thing. Oh, there's a DM's guide. Oh, there's a beast chair. And I'm, I'm not hating. Like the beast chair is useful. The DM's guide is useful. Both of them. I have used both of those. I've only ever used the player's handbook to make a character. And even then I prefer online resources, but. So as a game designer, what I take away from reading something like that, something like the fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons book is that I have to accept, you know, I'm not dealing with people who are going to pirate my system and like, it's going to be this thing that millions of people want to have and, and whatever. It's like, I would rather make it as clear and upfront as possible how to run the game and not worry about that. And at the same time, um, the sort of conventional wisdom and not, and people having to relearn the system, to me, that's a selling point where it's like, the people who are probably going to give my system a shot are people who either have played a bunch of other games and now want something different, or they're going to be people who aren't familiar and for some reason, you know, this would be their starting point. So what's the real difference there? I'm not worried about people who want a similar, a very similar experience, but would, would object to relearning a system or having like certain terms be changed almost in an arbitrary way because it's like, why don't you just use this term? This is the accepted term for that mechanic. It's like, I don't feel like calling it that. So screw it. I'm not going to call it that. I definitely think, uh, there's, there's a sliding scale, right? There's basically just reskinning an existing more popular game, in which case it's like, why did you bother? The answer is to change one or two little nitpicky things. It's like, uh, okay. Uh, but then there's, on the far side of that, it's very hard to get into. And I understand, like, I understand, like, I think that our perspective, the perspective of somebody who would actually go and make a role-playing game is not that of every people who have played and learned other games. In my experience, is very hard to get players to I mean, not my players personally. I've been very lucky with that. But it's not easy to get someone to go learn a new system. It's not easy to learn a new system. And people almost always prefer you no. Know, and a lot of, you know, a lot of influential people are like, I think, you know, Matt Colville said, of games that weren't D&D, which, you know, obviously incensed me at the time, but he had a fucking point, right? Wait, what did like he, he had the full universe. He said that he grew out of game. He used to play a lot of games that weren't D&D. He used to play all sorts of tabletop role-playing games. He says that he's felt that he's grown out of playing games that oh. aren't D&D. Oh, right. Sense to me when I first heard it, but 
he's got a, he's got a fucking point. And he talked about how and people will ask him, "Do you use unearthed arcana?" He's like, "No," because I think I could go the rest of my life. He's like fifty without ever using of what I have between the player's handbook and my own mind, right? Right, and that's something we've talked about on previous episodes of this podcast. Is is and in my stance on that is that I feel it's kind of a tragedy that um game manager or game uh gms and and dms have a such a skill set that they've developed over time i think by running bad systems and force and finding ways to make bad systems fun through their own hard work and their blood sweat and tears right. as gms a guy like matt Koval, i i can almost guarantee he doesn't need any system at all he can just you know run it run a game and have people Fun and that's, you know, that's what he said was that he'd been running a game like D and D without realizing it on like the old school bulletin boards in the heyday of the internet. Right. So D&D. it's like oh, like this. You do have a certain breed of this sort of uh, maybe not an intellectual giant, but at the very least, somebody who's forged in this sort of firsthand experience of running these games, and the system is really just there to enhance what they were already going to do. And to me, I can't design a game with that kind of person in mind because it's like what I don't have anything to offer that person. Uh, yeah. what, I, what I'm trying to do, what I'm hoping to do with my system is find some weird niche, you know, a uh, community that would appreciate how I approach it, approach it. And through word of mouth or whatever, there'll be some sliver of people who, uh, prefer mine or, I would be happy just influencing other creators if I come up with an idea that they like. You know, maybe I'll get some credit down the road for that, but I think I have a pretty realistic idea of of how obscure my system is going to be, but it doesn't stop me from putting everything I have into it and trying to make it the best I can. Um, yeah, I guess the scenario, right? Because if you put out something that's kind of who made Vampire the Masquerade or basically making it as a joke about, like, edgy goth culture all and they wound up creating an institution that became a, a zero point a point of introduction at a time when that was unthinkable for new players to table up role playing games so i think that that's a very good argument for you know go full tilt give it your all even if it winds up like dogs in the vineyard which i'm pretty sure is known by as many designers as it is by casual players right right um even if it winds up like that, at least you, you'll have made something quality and you, you'll learn from that. And yeah. uh, you, maybe a subsequent game will be better or maybe that you'll just be the richer for having produced it. Well, let's talk about what you're currently doing with yours because you have, is it not totally completed and ready to, to play test or is it, is there still something left before it's available to purchase? I'm not sure where your status is. It is available to purchase, although I am likely to put out a sort of like handbook, either pay what you want or just totally free somewhere, which might have like advice on running things. Additionally, boss laid it on a billion times, kind of like flanking. And what I'll normally wind up doing is create an optional rule and I might create an optional rule for critical hits right now, which is weird to say, because I, I hate doing this, because I've already sold the game to people. It's like, I can't change this shit. But at the huh. same time, like, part of ongoing support, like, I I got as many playtesters as I could, but honestly, not a lot of people were interested. And I couldn't get other people to run it very often, and now that it's out, it's actually easier to do that. And so I think I might have to put out gentle corrections or advice or goddamn me errata 
Right. Just a 1.1 PDF in that, thankfully it's PDF only, that store page is put the, in parentheses old in all caps in front of the other one and update some rules and like hate to do that, but I might have to. And I think that's a, it's better to fix it through pain than to just, like, obviously, or it just becomes a detriment to the game itself. But yeah. So, but to answer your question, is it playable? Yes, it's fully playable. You can run a mecha campaign. You can run a crafting and intrigue heavy campaign. You can just run around and kill people and loot things and try and survive. You can do one thing that I know a lot of games try to do. And I, I think they're cool, but like one game, for example, recently, the entire focus is on toppling an evil empire and like the players and the DM do this thing. And it's, it's interesting, but I'm like, do what I'm supposed to do with it. Warhammer Fantasy Real Play Edition doesn't tell me what I'm supposed to do with it. Shadowrun doesn't tell me what I'm supposed to do with it. Some games will give gentle guidance, like you are Shadowrunners or whatever, but or in, I think older versions of D&D, they said that the party was supposed to be good or neutral, never evil, right? Right. And that you couldn't play an evil character. But obviously, I went away over time. I prefer, not a simulation, but a sandbox, right? Yeah. And I think that I've created a, a sufficient sandbox, and I have really well, fl- I've not really well, but I've sufficiently fleshed out a region of play that will always be, you know, reproduced and owned by whoever's running the game. Their version of the EFS will always be theirs. In the same way that when I ran and fell in love with Space 1889, my version of Space 1889's Mars wound up being way different from the one that you find in the official novels and Adventure Pass, but that's fine. I still love that shit, and I still love my game, but it's completely is a finished product. You can go get it now, Alice, and you can you can play that game. So it's, it's done. On, like drive through RPG, you could go and buy it? drive through RPG, RPG now. It's dollar sign 850. I get dollar sign 510 from that every time you buy. I'm curious. Um, that's the deal. Yeah. And, and on the heels of releasing that, you've actually done other podcasts. You've been actually, I think, one of the most active people, it seems like, on GDG that I've seen. I don't know, uh, how it compares to the wider range of RPG, indie RPG developers right now or whatever, but, uh, I've definitely seen your, your output. Been shown in. You're when I try and post him. on TG, people will be like, "Can't you? Wasn't it enough to shit up all those discords?" And I'm like, "Oh, <laughs> I have just begun to shit." Yeah. <laughs> um, but tell us about those podcasts. And like, do you have a team of people that's helping you put this stuff out, or are you just going around to anywhere you can, like a podcast like this, and seeing who will take you and uh, let you show? I I I I show hard, and any time. I mean, I was on Raider, which for future you can see my horrible, ugly face. And funnily enough, I was on a live stream YouTube interview, right? With oh, that yeah. guy, I think you were there for that. Uh, Prospero. Yeah. Prospero is a is a person you should have him on the show if you can get him. Real pillar of the community uh, in all these weird TG spaces. But uh, honest to God, nobody else was in the house. And a painting fell and the glass shattered in the middle of the interview. And I was like, what the fuck? He was like, good shit. I'm like, yeah, what the hell? But yeah, I mean, and, you know, very low production values to me then. Actually, my favorite one, this might be my favorite after this, but my favorite podcast interview I've done where I had some, I thought very memorable quotes still hasn't been put out yet. Cause you know, podcasts, they frequently have a month long backlog, but it was many, many moons ago and Zipsetti is my spaghetti. Anybody, if if you're thinking, hey, I'd love to have some diesel punk indie TTRPG designer on my show right now, listen to this, like fucking look me up, fam. Uh, you know, Ulysses on Discord, <laughs> uh, you know, Yakro Diesel Age on Twitter and Facebook, like come at me, come get me, I will hop right on that dick. Um, I'm all about that exposure by any means necessary and making all those rounds 
but yeah, the pod, the actual play podcast that me and my friends do is literally just, that's just the gaming group that I have that like the core three players of which I was playing with back in college. And after we, Oh wow. We didn't want to leave, you know, it, it was a good thing and you don't run into that too often. I've, Learned, and I think many people on TG who either have never been able to get a group or have to deal with all the shitty online ones deal with. Um, so like, if you come across that, you fucking keep it by any means necessary, fam. Like, put on your bandana and shit. And I was actually, I'm, I'm kind of surprised to hear that because you guys, oh, I don't, I guess not. You guys had a level of banter there that I, I thought you guys must either know each other really well or you're, you're all just uh, forcing it really hard in order to, you know, have like you paid actors to come in and and try to turn up the the uh, yeah. banter or something like that. But that makes sense that you guys are actually old friends. Well, yeah, no, dude, like, that was, like, eating at the kitchen and, like, the fucking school cafeteria, that level of banter was going on, right? <laughs> so, like, so, like, yeah, that's just a constant stream. That's part of what's kept the group together is, like, the, the banter dynamic between uh, Madeline, Max, and James. They could ban- they're an infinite banter machine. I since added, like, friends of ours, like, Cole's from the, you know, he's not, he, He's a friend of mine. Got brought in. You know, he's with us now. Williams, a friend of Max, and so we've now got up this group of people who all have fairly strong real world connections. We've been playing together now for fucking years on Roll Twenty. So, if somebody was to listen to that actual play, would you say that the way that you're running that game is is it reflective of like do they throw in uh, twists and difficulties that represent? you know, a, a certain kind of play style that you wouldn't expect people to have as much or do you, cause when I was listening to it, it was like, there was a lot of banter and it felt like, uh, I was listening to try to find out, you know, the mechanics and yeah. it was a little bit hard to get to the mechanics because of how much just constant entertainment okay. value people yeah. are putting out. The better option might now be there's a VOD of a live stream I did where I played it for what was supposed to be five, but got whittled down to two people actually in the Matt Colville DM uh, Discord, and they had a one-shot club thing. They supported me, and they gave us a channel on his official Discord, which was very nice. nice. Shout out to Little Trash Panda. She's a great community manager. Emma Thales, who recommended that I do this and pushed me to do it. He's a great guy. I got a VOD. I've downloaded it from the Twitch stream, and I'm going to upload it. We had like one viewer by the end, and it was me checking the stream. Uh-huh. But uh, it was great, and I think that you'll get a much of what's going on. And like, just for example, I think that might be better with them throwing curveballs, because like one of the players was flying a helicopter and dropped this other guy on the roof and like it was maybe not the best decision and like shit was going sideways and someone just walked out with a nail gun, like not a, not a nail gun, but like a gun that sh- shoots many nails at once. And the guy in the helicopter was like, all right, I'm going to slap him with the ass under the, te- the helicopter, like the, the spinner on the back. And I was like, Oh shit. And you know, I hadn't expected that. And that definitely threw me a curveball. I think that maybe the way that I handled that was an example of how I handle unexpected things. But yeah, with my core group, like, they still come up with shenanigans, and I still have to be like, fuck, how is that, and what does that work? Or, like, I mean, you'll hear me look up the rules to my own damn game that are written <laughs> down in the podcast. That's what I love. Up. I, I love, as, a, as somebody under- listening to it, it's like, this is the creator of the game, you know, trying to run it with people who are trying to push it, obviously, uh, in in unexpected ways, because, in a way, that's, like, the ideal playtest slash, uh, you know, really putting the rubber to the road and seeing how it works in practice. And you get to be the one that suffers with the decisions. Right. With the way I'm like, Oh God, why did I do this? Why didn't I do that? Blah, blah, blah. Should I add this? Should I add that? No, the game's already out. Blah. And I definitely think that that's, it's fun. It's, it's, uh, 
podcast, like they're not necessarily trying to break the game. They're trying to play the game. And I asked them to make like a broad section of characters to represent, you know, the world and also the potential mechanics. So like someone was sure to have a crafter and a driver, you know, right. social combat. Someone was a, a local yokel who was maybe not so aware of the world. And so her character, like to explain why people don't just know this, it's like, Oh, she's ignorant. I and mean, we haven't gotten to that part yet because they're still in our home state, but. Well, let's just make sure that people who are listening to this and have no idea uh, what your game's about yet. You said it's diesel punk. Uh, explain yes. the basic setting and theme and tone of the game that you're trying to go for. Basic. Well, actually, one of the players in the thing did it probably better than I can. If you like these, otherwise, if you cringe, just ignore this. But Shadowrun meets Mad Max is how he described it. And I think that that's apt in some ways. I've been saying, uh, Great Gatsby meets Mad Max. And basically, imagine like graffiti from the 1920s and 30s and looking forward into the future and what it might be and how technology could work and like, you know, ever more and more opulent skyscrapers. Deco was basically invented for decadent rich, rich people, right? Right. Um, and that's sort of, and how they gauge the future and like uh, just scaling things up and airships and shit. And of course that all came crashing down with the second world war and with the onset of realities with the nuclear age. Uh, it's definitely an aesthetic that, uh, right. It's how people in the past look to the future. So, Although so you cut out there for a little bit. What, what kind of aesthetic is it? For future. It's looking how people from a certain period in time looked forward and thought right. they'd see the future. That's diesel punk generally in my game. That's the holds pretty true. Although unlike most, it's not an alternate reality or an alternate history. Everything that ha- has happened in our time still happens in the game. The game is set pretty far in the future, 2714, which can, I try to like not lead with that because some people will be like, what? The dreaded two phrase, two word phrase, which rhymes with oast. I, you lost me. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> well, you know, the, the people will say, oh, it's yet another post-apocalyptic game and then shut me out, but it's not. All right. Oh, was that a negative thing Empire. now? It's post-apocalyptic. People will immediately be like, why are all these settings supposed to be blah, 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 blah. But it's not, it's not, okay? It's not post-apocalyptic in the way that the people are thinking. It's post-apocalyptic in that way that one guy who wrote that one article about how all D&D games are post-apocalyptic or all, almost all tabletop RPGs are post-anapocalypse is true. And in the same way that the HRE rose for the apocalypse of the Roman Empire collapse, right? Which was an apocalypse to the people living through it. So... Right. I prefer to keep that sort of reasoned eye on it. Um, like, yeah, things are different and like we don't have all the modern technology we have, although some things are more futuristic. But yeah, yeah. and when I was reading the rules, uh, cause I, I think I read a couple of drafts that you put out on GDG there. I was very fascinated by the level of, of, uh, detail you put into the history of various states and their political factions and sort of a, it feels like a lived-in world, and I like the way that you connected some realistic, you know, themes of corruption and and whatever. It's not like a, a lazy post-apocalyptic setting where that's what that's maybe the reason why I would associate post-apocalyptic things with uh, negatively is because there's it's basically the easiest way to make a story. It's just nothing works. Don't expect anything to make any sense when you get there, and and you're just sort of living in this wasteland, but you actually have what feels like a system for how society would continue on in this world. And it's not some sort of wasteland, even though, you know, there's a lot of uh, struggle or whatever. It feels like there is 
hope and there are people who are good and bad in there. It's not just pure uh, carnage and, and scavengers or anything like that. I thought it was a good balance. Yeah, and that's definitely what I tried to strike. And I think that that might be, that's why I try and say like Great Gatsby meets Mad Max is because like, yeah, there's some, there's like some vehicular combat going on. There are brigands on the road. There are horrible monsters outside that threaten civilization, but there's also booming metropolises building huge new skyscrapers. You know, they've got flying cars. They're printing their own money. They've got an elected government. What you're talking about is that in the, in the fluff document, in the fluff section of the book, I go through all 17 states of the EFS, which is the Eastern Free States. It's the Eastern Seaboard of the United States of America. It's basically its own country now. And they're trying to reunify, but it's going to take a long time. America. But America is, you know, it's a centuries dead idea now, right? It's kind of something. It's like, if it becomes America, it will be the Holy Roman Empire of the setting, right? Like, it won't be Holy Roman or an empire. It might occupy some of the same spaces, <laughs> but it'll be a new institution. And, but it's still buried in the trappings of the old one. So I try to explore, like, to keep things dangerous. There's obviously, like, there's corruption, there's crime, there's interfactional squabbles, like, in the cities. But there's also a sense of, like, no, there are places you can go in this world where people are just, like, living what a modern person would probably consider a normal and safe life. A little bit more dangerous, but it talks about, I think, in the overview of the EFS, that this is the safest time that most people have lived, right? I mean, there might be some Godzillas out there that might attack your city next week, but go to a cafe and buy a coffee or, you know, uh, get a hot dog from a stand and clo- or collect disability, whatever else. There's not a lot of social security or stuff like that in the <laughs> EFS. There's also no child labor laws. So like, they, they, there's lots of fucked up shit going on, well, but especially if you're, that's one of the reasons why I like reading it. I think you're a, a pretty great writer. I, I, I was basically going to read it to give you feedback on formatting and, you know, things like that. I ended up reading a lot of it just because your writing style was pretty captivating and, and you're also putting out from what you told me earlier, you're putting out uh, additional lore for in the setting, but it's not essential. It's just there for extra flavor and to help people realize. Yeah. And to clarify, it's, um, it's like in, I feel like, uh, I don't want to turn this into a Matt Colville dick sucking stream, but he has this point about like writing versus lore. And I do, I know a lot of people who love my lore or who love lore generally and maybe feel ambivalent towards mine, but I think there's also like a need to contextualize it with drama for many people. So what I'm putting out is I'm trying to do every week a new short story set in one of these states. They're called the 17 quintessentials. When it's done, not only will we be able to read about the state and how it is, we'll also be able to read about a story happening in the state that feels like this could only have happened in this state, right? Like there's a real there's a real reason to have the setting, a story set in this world, and there's real things to explore here. As Since you're a fan of Warhammer, I'm going to go ahead and make the comparison because one of the things I like the most about Warhammer is that even though they have these broad, uh, in a sense, generic factions and stuff like that, and it's very easy to reduce it down to just archetypes, um, they do so much work to try to inject real drama and stories and, and characters yeah. that people get attached to. And that's where basically all of the memes and the real attachment comes from, is not that people like the idea of playing as generic space marines it's that their particular chapter or their whatever is what they identify with and the the history and all the the fluff around that sucks them in a lot more and keeps them interested 
Yeah, it's like, what's how am I blanking on his name? But the Imperial Guardsman general who could infiltrate anything, right? And like all the memes around him. Right, exactly. Of him playing chess with his niche. And I love that they do it with with a, a, a sort of confidence in how they write it, where it's not like a hypothetical thing that might have happened. It's like, no, this is an important thing that happened. And and uh, I I know for myself, that inspired me to try to not have a generic setting, even though I wanted to have a lot of things be really wide open, how, how it would play out when you're exploring the world. But, and I find that an interesting contrast. I'm trying to um, think about somebody who's playing your game there would be a predictable arrangement of, you know, if you go north, you'll reach here, and you'll if you go here, there'll probably be a capital, and that capital will have these properties, and so you're setting a a definitive map, right? And but at the same time, the land space and the you know the campaigns you would want to run in there, there's enough wiggle room for endless stories to be told, and yeah, absolutely, presumably people can you know, tweak things to uh, suit their own campaign and be like, well, this is what the rules, this is what the book says, but in the way I'm playing it, you know, New York is now actually flooded with water and it's like this or that, you know. I think that that's that's like one of those things that often happens where people, like I fell in love with Space Station 9 as an example, but I later looked up that like you could only have like, because of the way the canals worked, like only so large of boats, but I had had my people on like a steamship that had been imported from Earth, you know. Right. I, cause I hadn't read that section of the lore yet, but at the same time, it's like, you know, rule of cool, you can sort of overwrite that. And you're the, is dead in, in a weird way, you're wearing the author's skin, you know, Ted Bundy style while you are running <laughs> their game. So. That's an analogy. Uh, okay. So I'd, I'd say don't be afraid. Like, like I, I think for, like for game creators, don't be afraid to create a setting. Maybe try not to make it too strict, but like offer it in guidelines. I I want to eventually offer a guideline that has like counter shit and like where each city are for various states or various regions of states. Right. Book in part because I didn't want it to feel like uh, there's only one canonical way to adventure in this place. There's only one canonical arrangement that can be. I mean, I almost always mention the capital of each state, right? And various cities that, like, for example, uh, the lost city of Atlanta, right? It's not in the EFS. It's ruled by this sort of warlord of the week system. And uh, it, that's sort of an, an idea for, like, see, adventure seeds. Right, of but course. But it's not you're wandering around and there's only one way that it can be. Yeah, that's probably yeah. the best sweet spot you want to hit is where you really inspire um, a single idea of how something works by being specific with your backstory and stuff. But at the same time, you do want them to be seeds. You don't want them to be, you know, handcuffs mm. of how you have to do it one way. Players who will prefer, like, to have modules that have detailed maps and information shit, and that's fine. I think that that can come later additionally. I think there's nice additions. But I don't think, I think that on a level can make it feel like a dictate. Yeah, which many people will ignore anyway, and I encourage that. But you know, from a designer's perspective, you want to engender how you run it, even though there's a lot there to run with. Yeah, and then this, these, uh, what did you call them? The seventeen essentials. Uh, when you quintessentials, yeah, there's stories each set in one of the states. Well, the one for Kennebec is out, which is like 
for those unfamiliar with the game, it's sort of like New Hampshire, Vermont, like the, 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 the way up there, New England states, which are very snowy at this point, and they've got some weird stuff going on in them societally. Right. And they tell a story that's weird, but I, I hope engaging. Some of the action falls a little short because it's a quasi-sniper duel. Uh, you know, it tells the story of a guy who, like, is living a very weird experience, which people outside of it don't have, but which you can literally have in, as the, your origin that you select a character creation oh, if right. you get someone from a Wymit. It's it's sort of engaging in that way. And the, the other one, Discount Dimes, is set in West Adam, which is, you know, one of those very much get-rich-quick, because in this world, you have to have, like, special permissions to enter Washington proper, the Beltway, get into the city. And this is basically an entire state of to make it big and get into the capital, but they can't. Or who they are engaged in some criminal underworld stuff out here that's profiting from all these people, and they have certain trade relations that are beneficial because of where they're located in the country, sort of between north and south. Yeah. I Tells like, the story unique to that place. I love that. I think it just gives such a nice texture to the bigger picture that you've already established, the framework you established. Now you're going in and giving it some texture and some little things that that be, people can obviously make derivatives of, but it, yeah, it just grounds you in a sense in what that world would really be like. And I would, I might have to rip off that idea because it's pretty good. I mean, having a world that creates the framework and then telling stories within it that uh, aren't necessary, but you know, for the people who already like the framework and want to have a stronger idea of the kinds of stories they could run in there. Very interesting. I think that there's, I don't know, a lot of indies have a one and done mentality and I don't like it. The games that I fall in love with, even if I don't use all their splats and stuff, they have a lot of them. And I always find them exciting to go see, Ooh, what's out of here? What's out of there? And that's part of why I have it perhaps too ambitious plan to try and next, start next month after April, put out one splat a month, try and support that with Patreon eventually. Do you have a centralized uh, website? Been, we, I have a wiki, and it will link to basically everything I do. I can sh- I can throw you that link. Sure. This is actually hosted for me by a very generous person from a Facebook group called uh, Trust. And I was like, does anybody have any advice on putting together a wiki? I think it would be really helpful for my game. And it did. Like, when we were running the VOD, like, I was in here checking, um, you know, just checking on, like, what are all the melee weapons and shit. And I've just got, I, although I fucked up and didn't put lines between them, which is a horrible mistake. But then I digress. It's like a nice way to check uh, how much is a, how much is a police baton? Oh, it's $6. Oh, how, how common is it? It's common. You know? Yeah. I'm seeing a lot of good links here. Uh, your Discord and, and, uh, places to listen to the podcast, that kind of stuff. I definitely And for those listening somewhere else, it's, yeah, it's ada-rpg.org. Right. That's it. That'll take you there. ADA dash rpg.org and I definitely I'm going to check out more of this because uh, there's a good chance I'm going to buy this and Ooh. I'm uh, I'm excited to see what you all do with this because I don't know anybody else who's quite as ambitious as you are in what you're trying to do here uh, at least from the GDG community I mean uh, I don't think you had any billion dollar Kickstarter or anything like that so you're really just coming Ooh. from the uh, the grassroots and you know, doing it with your own hard work. Yeah, I mean, half of this stuff is like, I mean, I think crowdfunding is an essential question, but I think that I'm going to try the Patreon. And people always tell me, you should have a Kickstarter, Kickstarter this, Kickstarter that. And I'm like, you know how low those fulfillment rates are? Because let me say, if you're someone in GDG right now who's like, 
man, I've been trying to put out games forever. It's never going to happen. Like I was exactly right there with you, my, my friend. Let me tell you one thing. The thing that got me here, that got me is my friends who I make that podcast with. And the fact that we, I mean, we were making the podcast before the game was out a little bit, but late enough in the stage that development was done. But I ran one shots with my friends all through periods of development. I mean, I think one of the earliest rule books was just a, a one shot handout and I could maybe show you those later on. You can see how far the game has come since then. Yeah. I'm always interested in the development history of things because I mean, you're at a point now, obviously your mind is filled with what to do post release and, and all that. But I mean, the journey of how you got here and the lessons you learned along the way, I'm very interested in. I definitely think that the, what got me personally here, just in terms of like actually finishing it, was my friends and having them look forward to this and playing the game with them and wanting to improve the game for them and with them. And I'm sort of the forever DM in our group. One person's pretty interested in trying it out, and he's run a one shot or two before. But uh yeah, I think that this is one of the ways to keep being the forever DM maybe not so painful, is if you enjoy doing the amateur development work, uh, you know, make them your playtesters. Yeah. And it's pretty, it's pretty righteous. And I do have a, I, what I want to do, and part of why the game is so ambitious and it's like, why does it have all this shit in it? Why does it have vehicles? Why does it have rules about disease? Cause like, I really wanted to do, I have this, my great ambition is to splat the world as I intentionally say it with a Y. Um, I want to put out a splat that will basically, I'll, the next one is Europa burning. Right. From there on, it'll be voted on by Patreon supporters, but it's going to add the Franco-Iberian League and the Republic, both of which are mentioned in the lore, states nearby, or at least some details about them. You're going to need more, a whole book for Britannia. But, uh, it's, it's like Western Europe, right? And it's going to add all sorts of things for like having military stuff. And if you want to run a military campaign, it's also going to, I'm going to try and introduce like only like one new mechanic each one though. What it'll mostly be is it'll be setting guides for regions and for nations and for parts of the world and talking about how they're unique and the unique morphs that they have to clarify in this world. There's this form, they're called Morphants, and they can they deliver gene mods directly through a stinger, and then they just fall over dead because they've done the job. And But they can reproduce in the wild, and they do that. And I have a D100 table full of them, similar to Chaos Mutations. I got to feel like such fake. Uh, but, yeah, they... Uh, <laughs> delivered straight, they, they bite you and that's it. And that you can have encounters with those and it's like, oh, you see a Morphan. That happens to the VOD and they manage to kill it. But it's like, if that thing makes it to hit on you, like it sails up and it, like, that's it. Like you've been morphed, my friend. The only way to get that changed is if you find another morph for the exact same slot. Like if it changed the color of your skin, you could change it to something else funky. And right. it's, uh. Well, what would be a couple of examples? Because that sounds to me like a, an amazing, tool for the GM to throw in at any given time and, and freak people out. But like, you know, this is sort of like the magic behind the screen, right? Are you going to roll a D100 and pick, or are you going to have one pre-picked? And there are some that are special regionals. You're going to start out with them. Either a raptor rider can ride giant birds or a, a diamond jaw from Bostonia. And they have, like, their, their, their saliva is acidic, right? Right, so you once you're affected by this... Sorry, once you're, once you're affected by this, once you get, you know, morphed, these sort of crazy mutations happen that aren't quite superpowers. They, I mean, they, they, it sounds like there might be a negative stigma with that as well. So you're, you're building up the entire time something called drift. Drift? What's drift? I hear the cast of that one fucking movie asked. As you go to Tokyo and you find out that with every two points of drift, 
Your max psyche is reduced by one point. It's two health bars, right? Vitality and psyche. And psyche gets hit for things that are like damaging to morale or just your sanity generally. And when that hits the zero mark, you roll for a psychotic break. Which you can think of this kind, not like you've gained six insanity points. You know, make a save or get a weird role playing thing, stigma that you have to adhere to that's hard to do. Right? They tend to be more mechanical. Like you faint or you run around or whatever. Although you can get syndromes too. And, but morphs. See, so yeah, that's why you don't want to just, what, like, people right now are asking, well, why don't I just get stuck with morphs? Well, one reason is because one of them has your skin turn it inside out and you just slowly die. <laughs> because these are corrupted versions of gene mods, right? They've been reproduced in the wild for a very long time and, uh, they're not necessarily things that anybody would ever actually want to happen to them. You get a third eye. And yeah, no. Discriminated against. And you, they're actually people who have these generally called skives which is a word that actually means like a greedy person um, in real life, or it did, you know, back in the 1920s or whenever the fuck it was used. Yeah. And it's in the implication is that they sought this out. And especially if they have multiple, it's like, Oh, they must've been, they must've been trying to get something cool and they wound up all fucked up. There's one misted view. Your iris turns pale and fills most of your eye. It becomes difficult to see anything. Confers minus five perception. That's just like, he's got fun. And you got one drift. It's like, Oh, that's unfortunate. Then there's eye and hair colorizer drift to zero. Roll twice on the color chart, change your eye and your hair color respectively. There's also these things called um, birth traits that you roll for randomly based on the region that your origin is from, and they just, you just get them. They're normally a small thing, but if you're, like, from Appalachia or someplace where a little bit strange, you can wind up with a tail, right? You can wind up weird. There's one guy who's in our game who has a, just a tuft of red hair, like he's an anime character or some shit, right? <laughs> but there's, there's an in-universe explanation for that, and I try to ground it. And acrodiesel, which is the reason it's called acrodiesel age, is society's been built up around the the fertility and mutagenic properties of acroid and then split into diesel for the, the fuel. Right. The fuel is this revolution. And they can very freely drill it at pretty much anywhere that life existed previously. So that's why it's it's fueling this age. Yeah. I remember reading about that and thinking that you really do just uh, dump more and more mm-hmm. tools in the hands of the GM to create uh, sort of a risk reward effect for players. Oh yeah, and I'm all about. That. I mean, there's the, there's there's two primary ways to re-roll. Sorry, I'm just gonna send you a cross section of the like the twenties available mute mute morphs. Okay. Here, bat wings, golden ichor, human tail, smooth chest. <laughs> the fact that uh, you can you can wind up uh, an individual of perhaps shall we say I, I I try to avoid all like um shall we say, things that would make it seem like I was on the certain side of whatever debate or whatever, like modern politics. Mm-hmm. I wanted this to be a game that could be enjoyed by anyone, even someone who disagreed with me strongly about whatever topic. Um, the, the, because one of the most common reasons that people have and grow more fans is sex changes. Right. Is that you can get ones that have both. And there are two, there are two separate morphs in this. So if you just get stung by one randomly, like you could just have tits now. <laughs> and it's like, uh-oh. Right? Or like your genitals could change, but like not the rest. And it's like, uh-oh. Not magical realm is out. creeping in. Magical realm. And definitely I think that, well, what I was afraid of was I was like, because a lot of these games, interestingly, Dieselpunk games in particular, are made by and for furries. Oh, yeah. But like, there's, uh, I, I, they have, a, I don't know. I don't know where the, where, the, where that cross section comes from. Um, fedoras? No. <laughs> um, yeah. You can get a human tail. And I think that a lot of people are hearing human with tail and they're thinking like some kind of like cute little cute animal. And I'm like, nah, painfully your, your tailbone juts forth half the length of your spine downwards, wrapped in new flesh and able to swish command. 
Okay. A tail used for all sorts of tricks, but it makes it difficult to find pants that fit. One drift. Yeah, I noticed one here that I think is kind of interesting. Uh, Red Herald, you perpetually show the symptoms of Red Death without having the disease. So basically you would automatically get all the reactions you would have if you have this disease, which I don't know what it is, but it sounds pretty bad. Mm -hmm. And of course, additionally, you may expend one vitality to become infectious for 24 hours. Yeah. Yeah, and then uh, <laughs> minus five charisma. You know, it's a, it, it is a definitely a mechanical thing. And I guess there would be a strategic reasons to be like, yeah, cool. I got the Red Herald. Um, it's like, no, I'm some sort of like, I, I'm coughing up blood and shit and I'm like some sort of horrible person and I'm shunned by society now to some degree. But you're also trying, like, maybe you're the social combat character. You soldier through that and you just like, you know, put on your weird plague ma or masquerade mask or plague mask and you just like, you know, having a conversation with someone and they're like, uh, you're a weird diseased man, but you make a, you make a fine argument. Uh, you know, and it's, <laughs> I, I like to imagine these sorts of situations you can wind up with without, or, or, you know, trying to make, and obviously some of them are mechanical, like spear like appendage. You literally, you get an attack. You can, and it's a reach one too. Like right. you've got like fucking, you just grow a, 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 like a fucking tyrannid spear thing out of your back. Ugh. Um, and it's horrible, and you look ugly, and people shun you, but, you know, you can stab bitches. But maybe you're not that great stabbing bitches, so maybe this is just unfortunate, right? Yeah, I know. Wanna... Yeah. I like the way that you've you sort of focused on the internal logic of the world. Like, uh, when you initially read it, it wouldn't be like these things come out and nobody in society is prepared for the advent of these things. It's You've integrated the logic of... Yeah, you'll meet people who have these, and you might get them. And in that sense, that's another way that it feels lived in, that you're not... That's one of the things I find bizarre about going back to something like Dungeons & Dragons, where where it's like there's people that can resurrect, you know, the dead, and yet society doesn't seem to have adapted to that notion at all. Or, like, it, there's yeah. a weird disconnect between the logic of being surrounded by monsters everywhere and... And these superhero powers that come around, people still like give your party lip and like don't have respect for them. It's like if you walk ten feet off the road, you're going to get killed. But these guys, you know, and some of that is up to the GM and stuff. But I just don't think the books themselves do a good job of selling the world as being a place that makes any logical sense. And yours, oh, I what I encountered. Sorry, no, go ahead. What I encountered with hacking the Warhammer games, I realized like. These are really built from the ground up to support the logic of the world. And I fell in love. I mean, people point out all sorts of horrible memes or broken instances in those games, but generally speaking, and I fell in love with it, that yeah. concept. And I wanted to do that with a setting of my own. And really in this game, I firmly believe you are going to, like some of the mechanics, you'll be like, hmm, but it'll totally make sense in context. And like in part of how I play the game, for example, in the actual play podcast, have these morphs are sort of, forced into to living into the ghetto called Skyveside, which is established to be fairly poorly patrolled on the border of, so, you know, if monsters got in, oh, what a shame, some Skyves died, right? Right. Uh, but at the same time, that semi-lawlessness has allowed it to become a place where, like, the, the bar is owned by this lady who's their fixer, who gives them jobs, a la uh, Mr. Johnson from Shadowrun. Oh, yeah. Yes. So it, it creates this space, right? Yeah, and I, th I would totally agree that I think Warhammer has done a good job in setting that precedent. And I'm glad that you say that you're, you're, you fell in love with that and you're inspired that with that because there's not enough games that do that. There's not, and I think that's something that if somebody's listened to this and they're, they're trying to 
have just a, a little bit of lore in their game or just like a taste of a generic sort of flavor, consider going the opposite way and just having a really grounded uh, world with an internal logic and and have more unique and and uh, intertwined sort of mechanical and lore things. And, and even if it's not, you know, a map that is a direct, uh, you know, one map that you're supposed to use for all games or something like that, it, at least have something that people can really sink their teeth into because I think you do end up having something people can immerse themselves in a lot sooner. Uh, and for anybody who does get hooked, you have them hooked. You can keep putting out more stories and more stuff if you're the type of person who likes writing. Certainly. Um, I do think that there's, I mean, I've had people also say, oh, this would make a great generic system because they're like a generic system junkie, right? Yeah. So like the people who unironically say the answer is GURPS to everything. I think it's totally, totally legitimate. I've even played with the idea myself, but I can understand want something like that. But I would recommend you to probably suggestion, right? Suggest as an example. Here's how it could be done, right? I think that game I mentioned earlier about toppling evil empires, in theory, it's all made by the, the players and the uh, DM in session zero, how things are set up, but it's in the back that you can just grab and go with. So I think if you're making it generic, it's a great idea to have multiple examples of a fully functional setting. Yeah. Annex as an extra download somewhere. And for example, Ops and Tactics is generic or modern world, but he's also made a space one uh, called Kandai and the Kandai system. And I think, he, I don't know if he's going to sell that or what, but if you get involved in the Ops and Tactics community, you'll find those updates and he'll, he'll glad to share it with you and ask for feedback. Um, it's a strong and smart way to go. Additionally, if you're trying for like a generic OSR or whatever, or something that you're going to put the rights to out there for other people to put stuff out for, you can then create it or, or but the rights are a little more questionable because your game is a D20 modern hack. You can put out a, a you know, is setting based that you can then charge for. If you want to charge, I know a lot of people are just going to put out for free and I respect that. And a lot of people have gotten a crack at my game for free. Obviously, like I, I wasn't expecting money out of people when the game wasn't released. I'm still fairly free with comps for playtesters and reviewers and stuff like that now. But, uh, you know, yeah. I don't think there's any shame in asking for money for something you put this much time and work into. Oh, no. Even if you don't think that you're going to get rich off of it because you're out of expectation, you're not. But, uh, you know, I think that there's, there's a chance to grow something. I think of an overwhelming sense of, no, there's no chance here. Just got to put out something that kind of works and leave it, you know, floating in the void is people because it sort of means that you're done with it. I understand the desire to be done with it, but uh, I think that, like, you need to try. You need to really push and put something out there. Not everybody's going to be lucky. Yeah, and that sort of brings me to something else I wanted to ask you. I mean, you sound like you you have endless energy to be uh, developing this, and you are ambitious. What kind of, like, work-life balance do you have? What, How much time per week do you devote to this, and, and you, do you... Uh, do you have any advice for people who like, you know, you got a full-time job and you're, you're not able to devote much time to it, but you know, what is your, yeah. I can, I can share some perspective, although, you know, I am presently fun employed, so I do have an advantage up on people who are grinding the nine to five right now. Uh, but I mean, a lot of development happened while I was still a student, a lot, right? Size wise, but not time wise. Um, so here's how this really works. You want to set up. Testers that really go over mechanics that you're trying to iron out and you want to see, 
you know, Prosper fall apart in the field and you'll see a lot of mechanics fall apart in the field. Trust me. That's how Social Combat 1.0 went. had to be totally written, rewritten. Very glad it w- was. Very strong now. Surprisingly straightforward. You can watch it played very easily on the VOD. Um, but yeah, the, the, the advice I'd give for writing fiction and probably would work for your books as well is have time. It's Sorry, a chronological you there time. A bit. Can you, what, what should you have? Time that oh. you are going to write. Right, and right. always and keep that as religiously as you can. I've been screwing up a little bit with my 7 and 7 because I was trying to do 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. But always like just make it a force of habit. Always do it. Even if it's trash, you're going to have to throw out. Just do it, do it, do it until it's become a habit, and then you will produce not from that as liberally or as conservatively as you want, right, um, and rewrite as you will. But with games, I find that it, and then have some time after the session or the next day to just because maybe you're on a Friday or whatever, or a Saturday, or you just you just run midday and you have time that night. With like the iron is hot. Some people will say let it hit. Personally, I think you want to go right into the rules and start changing things. Maybe say what it was before, like but do some rewrites, examine things with it fresh in your mind with what's you're saying on the you, heels of like fresh a in your mind. So that's how I did a lot of this. A lot of Ada's development happened. Right after a uh, one shot or whatever, I would be like, man, that, that mechanic, it really didn't work out. Like that's how social combat got scrapped in our place. I was like, nope. That's how a lot of other things happened. And I would, I would, uh, you know, I'd think about it and I would decide. I personally drew a lot of energy from ha- it, it having just happened and being very real and having just played the game, right? Yeah. I think so many things other fall people- apart when you actually put it into practice and somebody will just mention one thing and it's like, you have to have definitely the play test and the notepad there. And if that doesn't motivate you to, you know, adjust things, I don't know what would. I think that people have different systems, but it's kind of like a big fan fiction guy. But I know a lot of people, there's an energy right after you've seen something or engaged with something for more of it. And there's a desire to interject oneself, like author insert shit comes from here. Uh, and that's something that can make you a lot of money if you make it about Twilight. Cough, cough, 50 shades, <laughs> problematic. Cough, cough. Um, there's, I think that that energy, I think it's a similar energy that I'm motivated by. It's, it's not quite the same for me. But, you know, other people, they, they've got to go and meditate or whatever. It's fine. But one thing that I think is universal of your routine and doing it at the same time every day, because I can't, you know, and I'm not really qualified to, to guess at how to do this. But just trust me when I say you want this to be part of your routine. And I just think you might have a busy routine. You can't do it literally every day. But if so, try as hard as you can to make it like a weekly thing. And, uh, I know that a lot of people say 200 words a day for writing fiction. I don't, I wouldn't fix it in word count. Yes, if you're writing fiction, it does need to be at least 200 words a day. But I think you're going to blow by that without noticing. Or you're going to, or even if you're not quite reaching it, don't push it beyond the hour so that you've devoted. And if you're making rules, I mean, a single line in a rule book be, mean way more than paragraphs. As we talked about with 5e and how that those drill books are written, right? Right, yeah. So much of that could be on one half page. Instead, they spend many paragraphs. And part of that's because they saw there was a style of person who, like, they would see one sentence and they'd be like, what does that quite mean? But if you showed them, if you showed them ten sentences saying, well, it's the same thing remixed, they'd be like, oh, okay. You know, replete with examples and shit. And examples are good. I don't think there are enough examples in the outer rule book. If I add anything, I might, it might be that. See, I find that. Oh, go ahead. I, I just, I know that I was lucky enough to have a guy who actually does pro Q&A for free. And his biggest feedback, even those months ago, was, I think it's all good, it's all there, but you really need an intro 
they were in the intro of each chapter, try and get examples of everything that happens in this chapter, give an example of it. Right. And I think that's probably, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but that probably the lack of that, those examples probably comes from the fact that you have so much experience as a GM that all you need to do is see a mechanic or a concept and you, your brain is already thinking of ways you can, you know, yeah, yeah. But definitely going back in time and remembering how hard it was to initially learn systems. I understand why examples are very necessary, but I also understand why that thought just slips my mind now. Right. Because I'm, I mean, fuck, I'm creating all sorts of weird shit. I actually had a system that I got halfway through making where the entire concept was that you'd always play as your ancestor. Huh. And there was like a complex like DNA system. There was crossbreeding with like the seven different species and shit that was in the game. And like there was names for all the half breeds and whether or not they could reproduce and like the stat effects. And like there were like, it was like DNA. It was like the A block, the B block, the F block, the whatever block. Wow. And I think that that was a really hard thing. And I tried to get to like writing examples for that. And I was like, what the fuck? But, but to me, right, like it had been no low down in creating all that. It was just the only slowdown was like, what do I call an elf and a crab person? Right? Like, yeah, I find it very interesting that the contrast between you and some of the people I've talked to here before who say the exact opposite about the workflow and how you can't force it. You can't have a time slot that you, you know, devote to it and, and that if you try to force it, it just comes out uh, being you know, watered down, you have to wait for inspiration and then, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, obviously what you're putting out, you're, you're a very productive person. And so in that sense, you could objectively compare and say, well, this guy's doing a hell of a lot more than the other people are. And, uh, say, I, I haven't been a very productive person all my life. I'm actually fairly lazy. This is a really weird, unique situation that I'm in right now where I'm like putting all this shit out and I'm like, wow, how am I doing this? You're writing some sort of high. <laughs> But a high, and I definitely, I can understand where they're coming from, and I've definitely forced things before that not so great. And like putting out a story each week, like of course the quality is going to suffer versus if I only wrote when I was inspired. But wouldn't that just tie yeah. into a general strategy that you have of self motivation and and your ambition, whereas somebody else might have a strategy that you know maybe it'll get to that yet they'll have a phase of development as they're closer to being finished or something, but. You know, I know for my own system, I'm not going to pretend I'm a good example. I'm actually a, a terrible example. People should learn from my mistakes. But, you know, I started off not taking my own project seriously at all and, you know, working on it for years on and off just as a, a theoretical project. And then slowly over time, I decided I wanted to actually finish it. But there's so many periods of dumping in a lot of work without a clear goal in mind or a strategy oh, of how it was going yes. to end up. How I know that because yeah. it was going to be out like that month for so many months. And to, trust me, I'm so you said in the end of development, my God, it's a slog. And I've been looking everywhere. It's like, how do I map this out? How do I plan this out? And I don't think that there's one universal silver bullet that will work for everyone, but definitely um, if you have a project that you want to make your main focus, or if you were just, maybe you're not that serious about it, but you want to kind of like, have a, you want to finish someday because I don't know if this was all said in the pre-recording thing, but I believe that finishing something is literally a skill separate from the skill of creating that thing, which you are not developing while you are just making things, right? You need to finish. And part of this is me doing this weekly thing is to finish things, to finish books, to finish products, to try and put out spot every month, just to finish tabletop content. Yeah. We were talking to, uh, I was talking to, uh, 
Tom Jensen, uh, who's recently joined GDG and, and he's actually put up tons of stuff in, on the Wargame Vault and he was talking about his cycle of uh, design and it was a very practical, no-nonsense sort of get interested in something, do research, you know, make the mechanics and get play testers. And he's put out so many smaller projects, like relative to one giant sort of uh, dream RPG that's going to, you're, you're going to support for a long time. It's sort of, it is a project that's done and then it's out and afterwards it, it goes to the next one. And it's, it's a very different strategy. I can say for myself, I, I can feel that there is a very, clear stages of a sort of vague probing what do I even work on what do I even want to work on what would it be nice to be able to create and it was almost it was zero productivity it was all theory and and uh, fantasizing about what could be possible and then it sort of went into a stage of testing things and throwing out ideas but not committing to anything not wanting to give it a name not wanting to give it a an identity because I was just exploring ideas and over time the phases, you know, there's a different mentality has to go with each phase. And eventually once you, once I found basically GDG and, and uh, felt like this would be an actual community, I want to put something out to uh, that gave me a new focus on, okay, no, I actually want to finish this and I know who I'm going to aim it at. I know what level of, writing I'm going to need because these aren't people who are totally new to RPGs and stuff. Most of them know what they're doing. So it gave me a really sharp focus. And that's when I've been able to trim a lot of stuff and really focus on finishing things closer. So I've made making a lot more practical progress since then. I mean, I definitely, I have, I'm going through that exact same process right now with what might someday be my next game. If I go with it in terms of, (laughs) Just like ideas for mechanics and stuff. And I'm going to go through that. And I will, with the, that other game I tried to make, I just sort of rushed into it. And I just, nobody cared. It was the D10 uh, Starfighting game. And the other one was, uh, you know, I'd never finished in part because I didn't have this, I didn't have a group behind me encouraging me and pushing me forward. Yeah. Although it's correlated to that. Don't, don't half finish something and then just like, particularly with writing and then show it to people and ask for feedback. Because I don't know about you, but I frequently it becomes dead to me from there. Actually, I've tried um, to emphasize that point. I know I get made fun of all the time in GDG for never having put out anything, but you know, it's like if I put out something and there's five, you know, major parts of the system that aren't explained at all properly, but what kind of feedback am I really getting if I put that out? It's not gonna. I'm I'm just gonna mm-hmm. get confusion and backlash on things that aren't even relevant. You know. Yeah, I think that that's, I mean, that you, that's part of like the, like the environment and you'll find people like that in GDG and other places. Uh, it's nothing personal that they're wrong, but there's like, I think there's two kinds, there's three kinds of feedback, right? There's somebody who will actually kind of give your system a read. They're very, they're fairly rare. There's somebody who will look through it and they'll find one or two things and they'll give feedback on it. And I've been that sort of person before. I'm not, not like tooting my own horn here. That's basically uh, what I did with your, with your system when I was reading it. Yeah, but like a lot of people, they're gonna like, they're gonna give a glance and be like here and there, you know, they're gonna, they're gonna impart some wisdom, you know, take that, you know, take that with a grain of salt. Uh, don't, don't try and push back in, so just accept it as it is. Um, or sometimes I get wrapped up in trying to explain myself and it comes off as defensive or really is defensive and there's, there's nothing to be gained there. Just accept, you know, that little message in the bottle and keep in mind and, uh, you know, think through it yourself and move on. And then there's also someone 
where they just have their own idea about how it's going to go on. They're going to rant. And like, that's cool and all. Like, I encourage you to engage with them, mm-hmm. but like, don't let them decide how your game is going to, how it should be played or decide that right. you received well because you find one person out there. Also, I hear a lot of advice recently, which was, I'm in another one called Game Design, and it's uh, Discord, and there's a guy who's actually, like, owns, like, a tabletop publishing company. It's a small indie thing, but he shot down that advice you hear, like, well, are you making this game for just you and your friends, or are you making it for a wider audience? You know, who are you supposed to play it? And fuck them, because there exist groups of people like you and your friends. You're not that unique. And there are going to be people who like to play... Oh, shit, that's my phone. Sorry. Um, people who... Uh, are like you and your friends, right? So just make sure that it's learnable by other groups of people. Yeah. But you don't have to change the game just because it's a thing you and your friends like. You and your friends aren't the only set of people like you who exist in the world, right? Yeah. Would, consider the motivations. I my try my to, friends are probably playing this game because of my friends. Yeah. You're lucky to have those friends, and that, that's one of the things that I'm learning as I'm talking to more people is that people who have a, a group that's always interested in what they're doing or willing to indulge you know, crazy ideas, um, especially if you're just like the creative guy in the group, they're not all creative people. Um, it's a very huge advantage to be able to have that constant access to feedback and stuff. And I would say for people who are more shy or, or, you know, just don't have access to that kind of stuff. Um, hopefully you can find people on a place like GDG, um, that are actually willing to play test things and, but you do have to push for it and and pitch yourself and kind of get out of the introspective bubble. If you want other people to be excited about it, you have to be excited about it, right? Definitely. And it's also, it helps to find a way to summarize and easily pitch your system, which over many months and having actually used my game, I still can't really do. So do as I say, not as I do, I guess. But also, <laughs> uh, I find that if you're willing to run it, people are almost always willing to play it, even if you really have to hold their hands through things like character creation. Yeah. That you're always going to get flakes, um, 50% or greater attrition rate. So, you know, stack a slightly larger group than you're comfortable with running. Trust me, everyone ain't going to show up. And, uh, yeah, run for them. And because I'm always trying to find, if you want to run my game, like, like, you know, hit me up, fam. I will, you know, I will find some way to, to make it worth your while. Cause I need, I need someone who isn't me to run my game. And I think they need to do it completely separate of me with me not knowing about it, not knowing, not being there. I mean, right. And them coming back and be like, this is how me and my players experienced this. We had no idea how the fuck to do X or Y, and we didn't understand Z. We, we did Y and this way, and it's like, oh, I see. And you're like, what the hell? This is alien. Yeah, but kind of what you're offering um, in return if somebody is if somebody does buy your game and try it out, because you didn't just release it and then walk away, there is sort of a, and at least an implicit promise that, you know, you'll be there to give them some help if they want some, or you're going to continue to support it. So, an official, I don't love Twitter or anything, but if you hit up the official Twitter or just slide into my DMs on Discord, like by all means, like visit me with whatever trouble you're having with the system, and I'll I'll do my best to help you through. I'll give you my advice, or if you want to do something like create, you know, weapons or vehicles for a region I haven't covered yet, I'll try and help you with that too. Although that won't, don't expect that to reflect too heavily in the official version that eventually comes out, right? Uh, but I will, I'll, I'll, I'm really interested in people trying to play my system. And obviously if this is like, if I'm really lucky and this is, you know, 10 years in the future and I'm like riding around, uh, popping bubbly, maybe I can't reach out to everyone who's interested, but believe you me right now and probably for the next many years, that is the case. 
Just slide into my DMs. I will be available. I will help you. And if you um, want to give him some sort of like really specific suggestions and demand that he puts it in there, I'm sure he'll be happy to just take any suggestions as well. Uh, dude, like, I, I had to stop going to one Discord cause like, they just got super fucking catty cause I asked for advice on what to put in the back of, uh, cause you know how many books have a services section, right? Right. On like, hiring laborers or renting vehicles and stuff. And I was like, what's the, what's the kind of stuff to put in there? I'm, and I'm looking up in D&D and stuff and I'm looking up in these different games and I'm asking. And three different people came and they gave me all this advice. I'm like, is this there? Is that? How about this? And I'm like, hey, that's, that's good. I hadn't thought of that. You know, very productive. Book exists because of their help. I'm very grateful. I wish I could remember their names and give a shout out. This was the LRR Discord, Learn Your to Run. Sketch, can't, blah. Sketch comedy group from Canada. Uh, and then, Entirely separate people came in and they're like, wow, what a stupid name your game has. And to be fair, a lot of people have said that and I'm cool with it. And I was like, all right, that's cool. And like, you should change it. And I'm like, well, there's a, there's a strong reason that it has that name. It's based in a lot of things. And additionally, it was almost impossible for me to change it now. It'd be a lot of work. And I've also just paid $80 for this cover art that has a feature, feature prominently on it. Right. And the response was, you've wasted the money. Go change it anyway. And I was like, okay. And they, they were like, when they became clear that I was not going to change the name of my game, like they, they were, they, like they vilified me. They're like, oh, maybe you should go somewhere else. And I'm just like, motherfucker. Let now, me tell you, if, like, well, I feel go, bad now because I know that I, I made fun of the name myself when I first heard it. But, oh, no, but that's complete. And you know what? I'm not going to, I've, I've rarely heard somebody like pronounce it like the first time. And that's part of why I push calling it Ada because I acknowledge I didn't pick a good name for my game. 100%. And if that's your criticism, hey. However, um, just don't, and, like, and that's cool. Like what you said, like that was totally fine. I've heard that plenty of times. Be the kind of person who like gets incensed when somebody who's made something that isn't yours, say, like they just say, I'm not changing it. Right. Especially if they didn't ask for it and whether they should. Now, so they've asked if they should change it and you put forward your argument and kind of like, uh, like maybe they won't wind up changing it, but like, you know, I'm not saying that there's never a valid, like, thing where you've given feedback and they're not taking it seriously enough. I'm not saying that never happens. But, like, especially if someone's come in and they've asked for feedback about a specific part and you find a completely different part, which they kind of try and make clear isn't really up for debate, even if you have some good points. Mm-hmm. That guy, it was just fine. And, I mean, some people are just stubborn. I've been, I've been stubborn about things and there were things that I would unreasonably not change and eventually changed on. Um, so, you know, it's all a process and I encourage anybody to take all criticism and do not try and defend themselves. I know that sounds weird, but like, don't try too hard to justify yourself or your decisions to somebody who's giving you feedback. Just try and draw out of them more and more of what their feedback is, like in a very non-judgmental way, and try and collect all of that and compare it to feedback gained from other people. Because maybe in there, which even if you don't agree with their whole, even if you don't agree with, especially if they're trying to give you a specific solution, now you may not agree with their solution, but if you draw it out, you may find that there truly is a problem that, that you have to do something about. Yeah, there'll about. be a little nugget or something that you can actually learn from. Or you may discover a special kind of player who maybe isn't that into your game or who dislikes a certain part of your game, and or maybe they're not representative of the wider opinion at all. But again, people aren't that unique. Like, somebody probably agrees with that guy. Yeah, one of the things we've sort of touched on, it seems like in every conversation I have with somebody who's designing a game, is that you have to have a vision and... That vision has to transcend anybody's detailed feedback, but there are many ways to reach the same goal, and your method might not always, your your first method might always not 
be the best one. If you get feedback, you basically have to match it up with that vision and say, does this help me reach my goal more effectively or not? And so it's not about that person's authority on the subject or, or, you know, the fact that five people basically voted it down. So now it's going to be unpopular. It's like, at least for myself, you have to have a vision that stands as sort of this, this sacred Definitely. ideal. And then that can stay the same, but all the, the details can change to better support that. And the worst situation is when people argue you down on one thing and then other people are arguing for be, for it to be the old way or another way. And you're just like, you know, even if you both have great points, I don't actually see why I'm going with one person's over the other. So I'm not going to continue to change it. Yeah. This is what I've been in before. I think that that's just kind of the nature of the beast with feedback, but also um, it reminds you that things should be the way that they are for a, a reason. And at some point you might just need to like break out a pen and paper and like go over a pro con list of initiative yeah. that works this way. Or why does the, why did I like one hill I decided to die on was that I was going to make the tactics skill relevant. I don't know if you've ever played a tabletop role-playing game and they had in their skill list something like leadership or tactics, or in the case of stars that number both, it was like a vague description of what it did, but never actually gave you any concrete advantage. <laughs> I haven't played Tantle that. Effect. No. You've never, you've never experienced, oh, well, I mean, have you ever experienced a game that had the tactics skill? No. Okay. Well, anyway, maybe this is a weird, it's a, and you'll have, uh, maybe you won't, but I have a weird pet peeve about useless tactic skills. Well, so yeah, like it's fucking, it's fucking for everything. Like you roll tactics, pure skill test plus 10 when initiative first happens so that you can fucking bump people's place in initiative order. It factors into yours. You get a D10 plus agility bonus, which is going to be like a, a two to four for a starting character, right? And then you get how many skill points do you have in tactics? Well, if you have two, then suddenly you could just double the, you know, at least significantly increased your initial standing in the tactics before you start bumping people up and down to get a more advantageous position for you and your team. And you can do other things with it through traits. You can eventually get to like the Star Wars board game had this called, it's like, you know, Descent, that like board game that's D&D, but not like a DM you're fighting against. Vaguely. Or his version of that, Fantasy Fight Dinner. It's pretty good. Uh, Imperial Assault's what it's called. I'm for it. I like that mode as well. Perhaps more than I like the default. Anyway, I digress here. I digress fucking heavily. Um, the point is that, why is this, why is this a thing? And you may have a very good reason. And maybe it even feels a little bit petty sometimes. Maybe the point out that not, not that many people care, but remember, like, apathy is death. Worse than death. Because at least the dead feed the birds and the insects. Hashtag Kraya. You, you know, you fuck that shit. If, if somebody's just making some argument of why, you know, why care? That's a great red flag of, oh no, if you didn't care, you wouldn't be making this game. And furthermore, many of these backseat designers, that's very, that maybe that's a bit harsh for me to say, but let's imagine for a moment there is such a thing as a backseat designer. I mean, this criticism from a position of the kind of game they would make, not what's going to make your game the best it can be, right? Yeah. I, and I admire your, uh, your attitude about it because I've seen the opposite where people are timid and, and very impressionable and the timid and impressionable designer before is part of why I'm saying this. I totally, yeah. Yeah. And it's like what I'm getting from you now is you sort of have a, a passion that consumes criticism. It's like, it, yeah, if somebody made fun of this, well, I'm going to work twice as hard and, you know, put a, put myself out there so much that, you know, my vision is going to, supersede yours and you know your belief in your own system and your ambition for it is going to sweep a lot of the the minor quibbles somebody might have under the rug 
Definitely. Although, yeah, no, try, try not to be stubborn. Try and take all criticism and pace, but remember, oh, and just because they haven't put out their game or whatever, it doesn't invalidate the criticism. Like they, like, you know, not all film critics have made movies. In fact, most of them haven't. That doesn't mean they don't know how to criticize a movie. Yeah. They, and they don't, they don't know how to make it. They just know what makes it good or not. Yeah. There's basically so one last topic I wanted to get to and it. That touches on it for for me because you said that you're sort of a forever GM. Um, how do you feel like that changes your approach um, as opposed to somebody like myself? I mostly did, you know, was playing as a player and I didn't like my experiences as a player. What I did afterwards was obviously that was sort of the, the initial start to why I wanted to design my own is because I wanted to have different experiences. Um, and I wanted, I, I sympathize with other players who were having bad experiences and very much. So I, even when I was, playing games and I I I felt like the the DM or the GM was struggling with the system to make it work and to obviously everyone's there to have fun and but I just felt like this empathy for all the the missed opportunities and disappointments that sort of came out of that system and I ended up doing a lot of research into what GMs said for advice and try to get into their mentality even though I hadn't run many games myself um, but I imagine it's quite different when you approach it as the guy who GMs a lot. And do you ever find that you have to stop and put yourself into the shoes of the player? Or is that just a natural? Like, yeah, you know, I've got a funny story about that, actually. So um, you one of the core four stats is perception. And that's your two hidden damage augmenter for the guns, right? Right. There's a There's a hidden secondary requirement, which is that in my game, there's something called an auto for any weapon. And that's your strength or agility necessary to be able to attack with it without having to make a strength or agility basic attribute test that you're not very likely to pass to be able to operate at all. Which means that you need to be, if you want to shoot a gun from just a standing position, you need to be fairly strong, even though that strength isn't how you're shooting the gun. So it used to be 10 to 5 higher across the board until I rolled up stats for a one-shot from my, one of my players to run a game and... I wound up unable to even shoot my fucking, like, my, my, my handgun, right? right. My, and, I try, and like, I had to make all these decisions in Kerrigan. I was like, oh shit, I got shit rolls, but I don't, I wanted to go with it, right? Like, I, I could have patient and point by in the game at that point. I, I can't remember. But anyway, even if it was, I remember a desire to, I think it was okay for me to re-roll, but I didn't. I went with that and I found myself, if you go prone, the auto for your gun goes down by 10 which is quite a bit in this context. So, like, I would always... Or if you brace the gun, but, like, the, the dream we were wasn't having it. I, I, there was no real place to brace these guns and these gunfights we were having. Uh, they're very frequent. So I was having to get on my fucking belly and shoot every time we got in an encounter, right? And, like, I I think that that... I mean, because I was thinking of it partly in a mischievous way of, like, ha, 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 when I was designing it. But I was like, oh, 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 as I was the player playing it. And I think that there's a fun way for that to happen. And then there's an unfun way for that to happen, right? Like, I kind of think it's funny when, like, even, like, if my gun, like, breaks in the middle of a gunfight, I'm like, ah, shit, now I've got a, now I've got a, you know, I'm in a situation, and suddenly this is, like, a mini episode within it, and I'm like, what am I doing? My gun's broken. And then there's a situation of, like, this, this mechanic just feels broken, right? And I, I amidst player feedback and my own desire from that experience, I jacked down the autos to be able to shoot guns, actually autos across the board for melee weapons and stuff, Realizing that that should mostly come in either when a character is very stacked one way, a crippling hit, 
uh, you know, that has reduced their stats in some way, and now suddenly they can't form uh, or agile enough. And I think that that's. I do think that when I'm the player, sometimes I'll get bored. Sometimes I'll get frustrated. I don't know if it just, as much as I complain, maybe I'm the forever DM for a reason, right? Maybe yeah. I'm the forever DM because there or because I'm, I don't know, I'm a storyteller, but I have a hard time with the and then, which is a funny position to be in, right? Yeah. Really good at reacting to my players. And I think that that's, I mean, maybe my players would disagree, but I think that's my style is that I react to the players and I'm a little bit better as a reactive force. One of the things I would love to be able to do and I don't know, this is probably impossible, but I would love to almost find a way to categorize the different indie RPGs uh, that are coming out now and that people are working on it as ones that are basically from somebody who's from a player background or from the, the GM background and be able to make points of comparison between them because to me that's just a fascinating subject. I, I've When I'm playing a game, I make it one of my top goals, if not the top goal, to help the GM out and try to, you know, feed into whatever he's setting up. I want to be able to pay it off and and explore whatever it is that he's doing. I'm trying to be like, you know, the best friend of the GM, not because I want advantages in the game, but because to me, he's the guy who's putting in all this work into creating the world and the story and all that kind of stuff. We so get I, a slightly more satisfying experience out of that because it's something that they're clearly angling for, right? Right, and it's like, why would I wander off the road into the the forest that he's pretty much told me I'm not supposed to go into just to, like, push his buttons? And, you know, I know there's not going to be anything there except death if if uh, I push it too much. You know, it's like, it's the same thing with, like, splitting the party. It's like, very sexy. As much as I can can empathize with the with the DM being like, what the fuck are my players doing and expecting a certain path. I also, part of why I love these games is the absolute freedom to go off the path. So right. I don't know, maybe that's a, a difference in philosophy, but I, I encourage it. I think you could run, you know, my game either way. Well, yeah. The, and, but I imagine that. It, it, for myself as a matter of principle, it's like, I guess I try to feel out the comfort zone of the, the guy who's running the game, and some people just really are not comfortable deviating from sort of the script, uh, even though I hate, I despise the idea of the, the scripted adventure. Um, if I am going to play, and if that's what the the D- GM is comfortable with, I'll try to play into that. But then from the guy who's, you know, when I run the game, I like the sandbox idea, and I like the encouraging people to go off the path, and I try to be prepared in different ways, and that's sort of where my system was born out of, is like, man, these, these systems really don't give me good tools for populating a random area or whatever. It's just like throw a monster at them is, is basically the only answer to anything. Systems are pretty good about that. Which systems? They're put out by Sign to Mind Publishing, uh, perhaps best known for Stars Without Number, which is definitely a TG darling. Uh, it's an OSR. I'm not an OSR guy, but I love that game. And it's got rules for popping, you know, star systems and things that you can encounter in weird situations that you can wind up in and, you know, in races and civilizations and rules for conflicts between factions and stuff like that, that, uh, here's a random encounter table, right? Yeah. And even just instructions on how to think about that problem from a GM point of view, I found was lacking in, in whatever I had been reading, but he tries to do that a lot with the DMG, but at the same time, I can see why that's some of the places that fall down. 
Yeah, because it didn't give me enough tools and mechanical, you know, uh, hooks to be able to support it. Um, even though in theory, you know, it's the wide world of adventure and there's anything is possible. In the end, it seems to basically be you need these and these many encounters per day and it's almost pretty much going to end up as combat and, you know, the, the leveling curve and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I had many objections to all those sorts of things, but from, from a design point of view, I imagine somebody who's been the GM a lot, not to disparage GMs in general, but you're almost used to, uh, I don't want to say dismissing, but managing the players to an extent where, uh, as a designer, I wonder, you know, if there isn't some sort, there's, there's a sort of a hostile relationship between the GM and the players a lot of times. And it's a sort of a competition or a tug of war over agency and story control and stuff, especially with, you know, people who are insecure and, and not that creative. Um, and I wonder how much that affects the creation of the system itself where you might throw in, uh, you might not be as concerned about the players, the sanctity of their agency, kind of, so to speak, that kind of stuff. But honestly, Reverse experience, because to me the default would be the GM is thinking more about the GM's side and the player is thinking more about the player's side. But as someone who really is the player, I mean, you've seen the origins and backgrounds list, right? Right. How many pages is that shit? Just to go remind myself, 70-something? Like, there's so many player options in this game, and I put so much of an emphasis on and making the player feel powerful with Psych Out, which is that at-cost mechanic where you take 1d4 Psyche, but you get to reroll in your primary educational area, which is one of three skills, right? Yeah, see, like, I, I get the sense the from looking at your material that, you know, you're not that insecure person who's not very creative. You're not going to just run other people's modules. Obviously, you're a very creative person, very... I never run someone else's module, which is what I'm in a weird situation where I feel like I should put out modules for others because I understand there, there are DMs like that, and I'm not hating, but, yeah, I've never run one of those. It's always, and frequently the setting is entirely my own as well. Exactly, so that's why you... That's why I would expect when you're writing your own system... You're one of the the fine examples of somebody who has an overabundance of ideas and you're not worried about people going off the road. And and that's why I'm excited to see how your game integrates and, and suggests so many things and opens things up. Because not only do I like the the setting that you've created, but I feel like you're probably the type of GM and creator, creative personality in general that uh, wants to embrace the the real exploration and and anything goes mentality in, in a world that you're creating. Yeah, and I think that, that that's the question that I've had, and I've, I've tried to make these recombinant loot tables and give some advice in the Dreamweaver section about how, in terms of like the danger of an area and what you can go and scout and just try and make something a bit you know, fluid and yeah. that can be taken from region to region because it's based on the rarity and the category of thing. Like there are common guns all over the world, but the common guns you find in EFS versus the Republic, which is largely you know, Germany and Appertain States, probably pretty different. The loot table works in either location, or if you want to come up with your own, even. Yeah, I love to hear that. Um, at some point, we're going to have you back, and we can get an update when you're riding around in limousines and and uh, yeah. all of that stuff. But this was a really great conversation. Uh, I love your your passion for what you're doing, and and thank you for coming on and, and shilling it and giving us some more insight into how it actually works. I'd be here. I uh, you know hope I gave the listeners something titillating, and I will be glad to come back again and again. 
uh, and giving you updates, how things go, particularly maybe after Europa burning next month. I want to see how that works out. I'm kind of scared, kind of excited. It sounds awesome. We'll honestly. see how the first splat gathers. I love the idea um, of the splat book, especially from like an indie RPG that you know they're not just trying to be greedy and just sort of capitalize on this existing uh, player just base. pay what you want. So, like, I mean, they'll... You can, everyone will be able to get it for like zero cents. That's awesome. That's, yeah. So that, that is, that's my model is only the base game is going to cost you. Oh. 850 for the base game. All of those monthly splats vote on which splat is next. You got to pay me on my Patreon, but you just want to enjoy what comes out next. That's fine. I think that's awesome. I, I really hope that, uh, you find, uh, exponential success with this as you put more into it because, uh, there aren't a lot of people who are, giving it that much effort and and have a strategy in mind of how they're going to continue to support it. So best of luck to you. Thank you. And thank you for you know being there, Pullman. I think you're a great member of the GDG community. And I definitely, I probably wouldn't give a shit about GDG if it weren't for you, honestly. I mean, <laughs> a lot of people float around those dis- the TG discords and it's like you and Prospero would take anything remotely seriously. Well, I, I greatly appreciate that. Great. We're going to have you back on some point and uh, just see how things have gone. Maybe you'll, have that other RPG that you talked about theoretically designing. You can have that in the the nascent uh, birth pang phases of of that being created. I'm always interested in the initial steps as well. Yeah. So, that'll be interesting. All right, I'll, well, I'll see. You. Yeah, I'll see you around on GDG. And uh, if anybody wants to come in, join the Discord there and and bother you with something, then I'm sure you'll be happy to have listeners or anyone uh, get in touch. All right, well, I'll see you. All right, see you around. So there you have it. If you want to get the game, if you want to get Ackroyd Diesel Age, I got a link on the podcast description. Um, I've got other information there, links to his YouTube channel, stuff like that. You know, support this guy and and pay attention to what he's doing if you're a creator Get in contact with him. Talk to him on GDG. I'm sure, you know, you could hear it yourself. He loves to have people buzzing around him. uh, But get whatever you can out of him. You know, exploit his wisdom for your own cause. That would be something everybody benefits. And uh, that's what our community should be about, I think. And and I I love this podcast. I can't wait to have him on again. I want to get this book. I want to see what he's all going to do with the material. Uh, I hope it's a it's a building, boiling success that just gets hotter and better uh, as it goes forward because, you know, this kind of game has the potential to spread. I've, I've read the material, I've read the setting, and I, I encourage you to get in contact with him and to get the book and just, you know, borrow the good ideas, get inspired, do whatever you have to do, but try to get on his level. Is, is something that we could all try to do. Thanks for listening. See you next time.